Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature pharmacogenomics and what's going on inside the Earth. Every day, we hear about climate change and what's going on in the atmosphere. But we don't often hear about what's going on beneath our feet. Aaron Cook, called Hervier Kalchik, a geophysicist at Australian National University, and asked him to take diffusion on a journey to the centre of the Earth. Voyer, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. We want to take our listeners to the centre of the Earth. Just how far is it going to be? Okay, well, first, thanks for um, inviting me. To answer this question, uh, the centre of the Earth is at 6,371 kilometre away from the Earth's surface. This has been long known uh, from the time of ancient Greek astronomers, Eratosthenes. So if we had, let's say, a a planet-sized drill bit and we started drilling down through the Earth, what would we find? What would be the first thing we we would come to? Okay, well, this is where the seismology or seismological observations become important. Uh, Today we know that the Earth is divided in three major shells. Uh, The first one is a thin uh, crust. Uh, You could compare it with the uh, crust of or the skin of an apple. Um, And then uh, most of the Earth is actually uh, Earth's mantle. Um, And the halfway down is the core mantle boundary. So uh, the core of the Earth, which is further divided into the outer core, and which is liquid, and the inner core, which is solid. So this crust, how, how thick is it? Well, the crust is on average uh, anything between 10 and 75 kilometers thick. And the reason that we know that is that there is a distinctive boundary um, between the crust and the mantle uh, that was discovered uh, by Andrea Mohorovicic in 1910. So it is actually the 100th anniversary of that discovery this year. He, in fact, noticed uh, two distinctive pairs of uh, the so-called P waves and S waves. Um, P waves are compressional waves that um, are generated in earthquakes, and S waves are shear waves that are also generated uh, during the earthquakes. Uh, P waves, in general, travel faster than the S waves. So he noticed that there should be a distinct a boundary that uh, would actually separate these two phases so that one uh, type of waves would travel, of P waves would travel above it, and uh, the second one would be uh, refracted by that uh, boundary and would travel actually beneath the boundary and arrive at the same station um, at, at the Earth's surface. So um, he found that it was uh, 54 kilometers deep boundary under Europe at that time. The thinnest crust is under the oceans um, and the thickest crust is under the large mountain belts like Himalayas. How deep have humans been physically? 
That's a good question. There have been attempts to actually uh, penetrate through uh, the Mohorovicic discontinuity or the crust mantle discontinuity. And the first such attempt was uh, during the 1960s. And uh, it was called Mohole Project. Uh, and it failed due to poor management. Um, and that drill was uh, actually drilled down to only 1.5 kilometer uh, depth. And the next attempt was uh, by Russians, uh, Kola Super Deep Borehole. This, this was on Kola Peninsula. And uh, that drill passed actually 12 kilometers below the Earth's surface. However, at that depth, the temperature was slightly higher than uh, they anticipated at the time. It was 180 degrees. Um, and the whole project was deemed infeasible because at that time they didn't have a technology to sustain such a high temperature. If we ever manage to get down through the, through the crust and into the mantle, what are we going to find in the mantle? Okay, so mantle is uh, significantly different in the chemical composition from the Earth's crust. The Earth's crust, I haven't mentioned that the, chem the typical chemical composition is uh, silicon, oxygen, magnesium, aluminum, uh, iron, and some calcium and natrium. Whereas mantle is, uh, um, on the human scale, it behaves as solid, but actually on geological time scale, which is on the order of millions of years, it behaves uh, as a liquid. It is also characterized uh, by several uh, mineralogical changes. These are um, very rapid changes in mineralogical properties, not necessarily chemical properties, and they occur at the depths of 410 and 660 kilometers um, below the Earth's surface. And 660 kilometers is actually uh, the discontinuity that separates the upper mantle and the lower mantle. Um, and then um, the mantle goes down to about uh, half half the way to the center of the Earth, um, which is uh, the core mantle boundary. What is the temperature of the mantle? Okay, maybe I should step back and say that the temperature deep in Earth cannot be measured, but instead it has to be extrapolated from seismic observations as well as the high pressure and temperature mineral physics uh, measurements and geodynamical modeling. So what we can measure is actually uh, how quickly the Earth is losing heat uh, through the surface. And that heat loss from Earth's interior is ever, when averaged over the surface is actually uh, 10,000 times less than uh, the heat that's received by the sun. What should be said is that um, the temperature profile is not precisely uh, known, but it is estimated that at the Earth's center, uh, the temperature reaches about uh, 7,000 kelvins. Hervoye, we've traveled down through the mantle, then we reach the core mantle boundary, and you said that the outer core is liquid. What, what's it made of? Okay, so uh, we believe that the core of the Earth is made of uh, predominantly iron and nickel. So it's iron-nickel alloy with some lighter elements like oxygen, sulfur, etc. The main difference between the um, outer core and the inner core, obviously, is that the outer core is liquid, whereas the inner core is solid. And the reason that we know that is um, through seismological observations again. So the significance of the outer core is that 
geomagnetic field of the Earth is produced in the outer core. It is produced predominantly through two processes. One of them is the Earth's rotation, so due to the Coriolis effect. And another one is due to the fact that there is a vigorous convection going on in the outer core. We know that at those temperatures, every single rock would be molten, so it would lose geomagnetic properties. So we know that the geomagnetic field must be created through the convection and through the dynamo that is very similar to the dynamo on the bicycle, for example. Uh, but instead of the electric currents, we have charged particles uh, or iron uh, that's moving vigorously through the outer core. And in combination with the Earth's rotation, it's producing the geomagnetic field. Right. So if that outer core wasn't made of iron, then we might not have a magnetic field surrounding the Earth? Um, yes, exactly. And also due to existence of the inner core, the inner core starts solidifying at some point in the Earth's history. So because of that process of growing of the inner core, a significant amount of energy is being released at the inner core boundary. And that energy is what actually drives the geodynamo. Conversion of, of the liquid to the solid state actually produces the excess energy that is needed to drive the geodynamo. Right, so the core of the Earth is this solid ball of iron and as more and more material cools onto its surface that releases energy and that drives a convection that creates the geomagnetic field of the Earth. Exactly. And that must have massive implications for us. Why is that geomagnetic field important? Well, as you know, uh, probably uh, that the geomagnetic field is important for humans because geomagnetic field is a shield that uh, protects us from the violent uh, radiation from the space. Right, so that obviously protects us from being bombarded with cosmic rays and whatnot and things that would do terrible damage to our DNA. That's right. And you mentioned that some of the heat from the centre of the Earth, some is left over from the formation of the planet and some other heat is actually from radioactive decay. What, what's decaying? How do you know that we've got radioactive elements down there? Well, uh, the Earth's internal heat comes from combination of these two processes. Um, early in the Earth's history, the heat production was much higher. We know that because of the process of differentiation, because at some point all the material was melted so that the heavier elements sunk down to the center of the Earth, whereas lighter elements segregated and, and uh, floated towards the surface of the Earth. So we must know the heat production was actually higher and it must be due to the radioactive decay because if we took just the heat from the accretion, the primordial accretion, then uh, if we would calculate the age of the Earth, it would be actually significantly less than what we know is the age of the Earth. And this is, I think, what was done by Lord Kelvin, who didn't actually knew about the radioactivity and didn't, didn't take that into account when calculating the age of the Earth. Hervoye, we've got the core of the Earth, which is pretty much a solid lump of iron, and you said that's around about the 7,000 Kelvin mark. Is there any hope that we're ever going to get to physically explore any deeper than, than perhaps making it to the mantle? Would we ever be able to get any sort of equipment down that deep? Well, as a scientist, you know, I would be, uh, I, I think I'm biased. I would 
be very enthusiastic about this. But um, at this point, uh, I'm afraid we don't have a technology to, unless we were somehow able to embed a, a, a piece of instrumentation of a sound that would sustain high pressure and temperatures and send it down to sink to the center of the earth. But we don't have a technology this time. So we must rely on the seismic waves and the observations and the theoretical studies of seismic waves. These are the only pieces of information that interacted with the various parts of the Earth, including the Earth's center. And look, if you could, you know, magically get that information or in, in the future some amazing piece of technology comes along, what are the mysteries that remain about the interior of the Earth that, that you might hope to answer? Well, when it comes to the inner core, first of all, we would like to understand better how the inner core is growing. So what are the processes at the inner core boundary and uh, what is the rate of growing? What is the density a contrast between the inner and outer core? This would be important because this would tell us something about the age of the inner core. Uh, currently, because of the large uncertainties in the temperature, we don't even know what is the melting point of iron at those pressure conditions, we cannot actually estimate the age of the inner core. And as you know, it would be important to estimate the age of the inner core because then we would increase constraints also on the Earth's geomagnetic field. Right. Excellent. Well, look, Havoya, thank you very much for your time. Uh, well, thanks again for inviting me. That was Havoya Kalchich at the Australian National University talking to Aaron Cook about the centre of the Earth. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Ollie Barand and Mark West explore pharmacogenomics. The emerging industry of pharmacogenomics, what it basically is, the development of personalised medications and vaccines and treatments that are personalized to the individual patient's particular genetic makeup. So basically like 90% of the medications and pharmaceuticals that make it to market, like 99% or something ridiculous like that, work incredibly well on 99% of the population. But there are that small fraction of people out there who just happen to have particular genetic composition where it messes them up you know it, it like they have a really adverse response so there's research into developing ways to be able to produce common uh, like easily accessible tests to test if you have uh, the presence of particular genes or something that will directly interfere with medications and to be able to tailor treatments to people's particular genetic makeup. So I'm really interested in the possibility um, of combining um, this pharmacogenomic uh, kind of diagnosis or testing with these new nanotechnology-based treatments. You know, so you can imagine, like, going to the doctor and they, they do, like, they, they've got, like, this um, generic um, testing kit and what the doctor does, they take a DNA sample, they might do it there at the surgery or they might send it off to, to a lab to get done. You get, like, your, your genetic sample sequenced to, to find the presence of um, these particular genes. It comes back, 
they say, oh, okay, this person has gene XYZ, so um, you need this variation of the kit. And they go from there with the diagnosis. And it's incredibly personalised um, to your particular uh, yeah, genetic makeup. There's only one problem with doing this mm. is that once you start doing genetic testing for your susceptibility to things, which can include susceptibility to various illnesses, or base, it, it's only the probability that you're going to get them, mm-hmm. some of them, but it affects your health insurance. If you're in a country that requires you to have private health insurance to be fully covered, and that's a lot of countries, mm. certainly uh, Australia doesn't have complete Medicare coverage and uh, America has none until unless Obama can win something there. Yeah, fingers crossed they get that. Um, you are required by law to tell your health insurance company what your susceptibilities are if you know them. So if mm. you've had the test done, NIB at the moment is targeting a small percentage of its customers for a genetic test for some particular genetic susceptibilities. And the thing is, this is over your head for the rest of your life. You may never get these illnesses, but it will affect your payments and you have to tell every health insurer, even if you change mm. brands. Even though NIB have, have come out saying, along with that announcement that they made, that they said, okay, this is an optional test that... Yes, um, you don't have to do it. Our, our customers but once you've done it, you have to give the information. Uh, no, they said that, no, you can't, your your information from the test can remain confidential. And in Between you the and case NIB. Of NIB. No, in the case of NIB, they say you don't have to disclose it with us. Yeah, however, you know, with big insurance companies like that, you got to wonder where the information does end up. I'm, so, with, I'm with NIB. What is this? I haven't heard this. Okay. <laughs> it's been in the... It hasn't been given huge amounts of press. It didn't go to all members. It just went to a small number that they used as a test group, oh. basically, to try it out on and see how much the customers would like it or dislike it. I thought I'd seen that there was a small clause that most people didn't read that actually said you had to disclose to, uh, to NIB. Because, um, yeah, I was interested in the story when it came out and the uh, the boss of NIB was on the 7.30 report talking to Kerry O'Brien. And um, when Kerry said that, yeah, brought up that point, um, do uh, customers have to disclose their details? He said, no, 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 they can choose for it to remain completely confidential. Uh, or I think he maybe even alluded, we're not interested in the results. We're just offering this as a. Then why as a are they doing it? It makes, just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. As if. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you suspect that it might be a bit of a testing of the waters to see, okay, um, what can we get away with as a as a health insurer, and how can we increase our our powers to uh, t- for um, our customers to dis- disclose this information. And for those of you who are wondering where this might lead, go and rent the movie Gattaca. <laughs> which predict it shows you exactly where all this sort of genetic testing for things where you can be judged on illnesses you may never get and mm. be refused jobs because you might be at risk of a heart attack one day or getting some other illness and mm. your genetic profile is part of everything. And in fact, in this film, like there's the emergence of a complete um, subclass of people that are deemed genetically inferior for uh, yeah to get anywhere in life. But they but, yeah. are pretty good looking, though. They look like Ethan Hawke, <laughs> oh, I seem yeah. to remember. So. Stay in the <laughs> no. Yeah. But, but, of course, like the other big thing to consider in this film in particular, it's um, based in a world that's <clears throat> completely devoid of, obviously, of like moral, you know, uh, moral duty to, to every person being treated as, as equal, equal rights and opportunities. So 
hopefully, you know, the optimist in me says, of course, that could never come true because we live in a society that's <laughs> far more morally bound. We have no rights protected that would stop this. I mean, basically, what this is based on, one, the health insurance companies are entitled to all your medical information. And regardless of what NIB say, that is the case. All medical, all health insurance want to know the results of all your tests. They're entitled to know. Otherwise, you can't be a member. Mm. It's, it's part of the rules. Because after all, you're betting with them. That's what insurance is. You're placing a bet and they need all the information to make an informed tr- bet. Mm. Um, employers have absolute power to discriminate on things that aren't in anti-discrimination laws. So if they, if there's a danger that you might have a heart attack at work or develop some illness, you are a less fit employee than someone who won't or probably won't, according to his genes. So why not discriminate in your, your favour unless that's outlawed? So if we don't have a specific anti-discrimination act for this, then employers will naturally want to use the information whether it makes sense for them or not mm. because it makes a tiny bit of sense. So the market drivers are there and there's nothing to stop it happening even in current society. Mm. And and I do believe actually, um, I, I did hear somewhere recently that in the US there is actually legislation in place to stop, I believe, insurance companies and employers from discriminating on people based on genetic results results from genetic tests. Um, However, that uh, legislation doesn't apply to people in the military, in the armed armed forces. Um, But unfortunately, we don't have similar legislation, similar protections here in Australia. So hopefully um, that will be addressed very soon. And those of you out there who are concerned uh, will make a bit of a noise about it. Right to your MP. Mm Mm-hmm. Protect my genetic rights. Damn it. And now some highlights from the Annals of Improbable Research, which is research that first makes you think and then makes you laugh. To start with, words newly banished in Britain. Britain's local government association has issued its 2010 list of 250 words the public sector shouldn't use. The Australian government should pay attention. Here's some highlights. The words trialogue, welderly, goldfish bowl facilitated conversation. What does that mean? It's a conversation which is facilitated by a goldfish bowl, which would seem to mean that you're talking about the goldfish bowl because you couldn't otherwise talk. That, that's sort of like talking about the weather. Is that, is that what they're meaning? Only when you don't have the weather in common. Perhaps the uh, perhaps the British have just got so sad of talking about the weather that they're um, importing goldfish into their offices instead. And talking about what the goldfish are doing. Yeah, well, goldfish are a great thing to talk about. I love my goldfish. Whereas you hate talking about the weather. Yeah, well, no, not not exactly, but. Um, and so for massive editing later, um, amongst the words that 250 words that should not be said by the public sector. Across the piece, actioned, advocate, ambassador, apportionment, area-focused, autonomous, baseline, best practice, customer insight, customer journey. Now, customer journey is pretty awful. Yeah, and um, actioned, I have to say, I come across that one a lot. Something should be actioned. That's pretty awful. Why not just do it? Exactly. Get it done. Headroom for change. Imagine the new Nike slogan, just action it. Hereditament. 
Holistic. Holistic governance. No one in the world knows what holistic means. Holistic is just a hippie word. No it one. Is. There's no. It doesn't have a meaning. It means even less when brought in with governance. <laughs> Informatics. Interactivity. Interdependencies. Early win. Downstream. Low fruit. Double devolution. Oh, low fruit will be much further down. No, low fruits. It is low hanging fruit. Well done. <laughs> and next we have Marmite and its side effects. Apparently, Britain is trying to come to terms with the launch of extra strong Marmite, just as Australia is trying to co- cope with iSnack 2.0, which was Vegemite's venture into adding cheese paste to its Vegemite and taking advantage of the whole 2.0 phenomena. And what are they saying about Marmite? Well, they're saying that Marmite has a history of ongoing biomedical experimentation. This goes back to 1931. That there was a steady diet of Marmite reports from all of the medical journals. Dr. Alexander Goodall of the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh regaled readers of The Lancet with a case report called The Treatment of Pernicious Anemia by Marmite. Since the publication of Wills's paper, I've treated all my maintenance cases with Marmite. Without exception, these have done well. Two weeks later, also in The Lancet, Stanley Davison of the University of Aberdeen disagreed. It would be very unwise at the present stage to suggest that Marmite can replace liver and hog stomach preparations. The Lancet readers would also have learned about Marmite in Sprue, the treatment of Marmite of megalocytic hypochromic anemia occurring in idiopathic steatorrhea and the nature of hemopoietic factor in Marmite. How often do you eat liver and hog stomach, Ian? About as often as I have Vegemite or Marmite, which is never. And detection and determination of theobramine and caffeine in urine after administration of chocolate-coated peanuts to horses from the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. I thought it was bad to feed chocolate to animals. Maybe that's just dogs. <laughs> Maybe it is horses and well, and that's why they're investigating it. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, if you have wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Aaron Cook, Ollie Barand, and Mark West. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.